Matthew. Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ from New Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harford County, Maryland. I, I come to you uh, by way of a friend in Destin, Florida. Uh, a man named Dewey Roberts came up and talked to our session about Vanguard and uh, Vanguard Presbytery and had the audacity to tell, take me on a tour of Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania church history me and some other other friends to find out about some of Samuel Davies' famous uh, Presbyterian pastor uh, and his, his history. So that's how I come to you. Um, our passage before us that we read already, 1 Chronicles 16, what's the context of it? Where is this coming from? This is the context is the ark has been brought back to Jerusalem after it had carelessly been brought back. Um, uh, this time it's being brought back again with zealous, joyous singing and dancing, and now faithful carrying of the ark as the Lord had prescribed it with Levitical priests. And after these songs uh, that we just read were sung and sacrifices offered, David was rebuked by his wife, who is cursed in turn and never bears a child. So this song is a medley. When I say the word medley, what do you think of? Vegetable medley? Carrots, peas, and corn? Broadway medley? Mix of hits from your favorite musicals? When I think of medley, I think of an individual medley. Uh, I am. It's a swimming competition where you have to use four basic different strokes to complete at least 100 meters. Butterfly, backstroke, breaststroke, freestyle. I looked on that event with fear and loathing. It was a total test. Instead of merely testing your endurance like a 500-meter swim, it also tested your versatility. Instead of just picking your best stroke, you were tested in them all. Every muscle in your body needed to obey your commands over and over again to push, to breathe, to pass, to win. And all your practice in each stroke was taken through that crucible. Had you practiced fly enough? Had you been working on your back turn? And your past and your current physical state were tested. Had you eaten well the night before, rested well, stretched, hydrated? If not, you might throw out your back or, or get a double Charlie horse cramp, as I once did, floundering to the edge of the pool for air. And your watery exertion would be recorded for future competitions. Your time and place would set your heat and your standing for divisional rounds, and you, if you made it far enough, for finals. David's medley of Psalms 96, 105, and part of 106 brings together all that David had practiced up to this point. It reveals his current feelings and trials, and it points forward to further tests that for David were yet to come. But why is David found leading singers and dancers in this medley of praise? David. David, as recently as chapter 13, 11, was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. That was the one who touched the ark. David was afraid of God. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? David had purposed to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the symbol of God's very presence, back to Jerusalem, but instead of appointing priests to bring back the Ark, David had put the Ark on a brand new cart. The cart wobbled. Uzzah reached out to steady the Ark and was struck dead by the Lord. 
The Lord had been clear in His law about how the ark was to be constructed and carried, but David had not heeded God's word. So what changed David's attitude from anger at the Lord to reverent worship? What took David from being angry and afraid and avoiding the Lord to singing and dancing before the Lord and drawing near? In the intervening time, according to the chronicler, God had blessed the ark's dwelling place, the house of Obed-Edom, given David victory over enemies, and led David to obey God's commandments regarding worship, namely that only Levitical priests should carry the ark instead of being carted around by oxen. David's estimation and understanding of the Lord was now more fully orbed. David had known previously of the Lord's blessing and victory, but now he knew also of the Lord's holiness and how the Lord means what He says, and He will judge those who disobey His word. David had disobeyed God's clear instruction as to how the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing His presence, should be transported. And far from discouraging worship, God's judgment encourages worship. We know God is serious. We know He's real. We know He takes Himself seriously and expects us to do the same. He is just in all His ways. He judged the Canaanites, but He also judged His people that He called by His name. That is a God worthy of respect. That is a God worthy of honor. That is a God worthy of worship. The Lord's judgments amplify our song. David's song is now louder, longer, more effective as he takes into account God's righteous wrath and self-revelation in his worship. Awareness of God's righteous judgment can sometimes scare us away. But as we continue to contemplate a just God, we realize we wouldn't want to worship anyone else. In our flesh, we're afraid of a wrathful God because we know how sinful we are, and so any countenance of a God of wrath offends our sensibilities. And it doesn't have good optics in our culture that hates hate. But God hates. God hates sin. This American culture is also full of calls for justice. But no justice can finally be meted out if God has no teeth. No claws, no power, no will to punish wickedness. But once we realize that God is both gracious and angry, blessing and cursing, then we take Him seriously and we worship. Those who believe in a God only made of love, let the sirens serenade. Those who respect only a God of wrath, let the rappers spit. But we who believe the Bible, who have been convinced like David that God is both just and justifier of the ungodly, sing corporately of the legitimate wrath and the purifying love of God. Like David, we sing a medley, a mix of God's wrath and God's love. Look at verse 9. Sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works. What are God's wondrous works? What are the works David had in mind? 
What are the works the post-exilic chronicler had in mind? Their past judgments. Look at verse 12. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. This calls to mind not only God's laws that He has given, but the punishments meted out on His own people by His own hand for crossing them and the many judgments visited also upon God's enemies. Sodom and Gomorrah was judgment which protected God's people. Abraham's victory over Canaanite kings, judgment. Judgment on the firstborn and the charioteers of Pharaoh for God's people. Judgment on priests offering strange fire, Leviticus 10. Judgment on Korah's rebellion against the Lord's prophets, number 16. Fiery serpents for complaining. A plague for fornicating. God is a holy, holy, holy God. And judgment begins with the household of God. And when we don't talk about His judgments, our worship is quiet. But when we realize When we emphasize, when we don't apologize for God's judgments, we get loud. We got something to sing about. A righteous, holy, miracle-working God of judgment. And if you don't know the true salvation of Jesus, God's judgments should make you shiver. But if you know Jesus, you should shout. My eldest two children went to an evangelical church on a trip to Cedarville. University, and there was a a loud rock band up front singing praise choruses over and over again. But it did not go unnoticed when the lead singer offered the microphone to the congregation to hear them singing. It was embarrassingly quiet. Though the room seated three times as many as our little church back home, the little Presbyterian church sung every stanza in every song louder than the big mega church. Why? Because the little church back home preaches God's love and God's judgments. We're going to sing if we know what we're spared from. The Lord's present judgment amplified David's medley. The, The judgments of the Lord immediately preceding and anteceding the restoration of the Ark to Jerusalem amplified the fervor of the singing of these songs. What had just happened prior to this occasion? Well, when the Philistines had taken the ark and they had put it in the same room as their god, Dagon, the Lord kept causing Dagon to fall down before the ark and eventually break in pieces in God's presence because, according to verse 26, the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. When the Philistines came out against David, the Lord gave victory, confirming verse 18, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And verse 35, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. The psalmist makes a direct correlation between thanksgiving and salvation, salvation from enemies, real enemies that had to be judged, destroyed. Living in peace, living in freedom, we can sometimes forget that the sin that we need to be saved from is not only a spiritual, but actual and physical sin that seeks to oppress, to tempt, and to kill. God, having granted the victory through their blood, sweat, and spears, and by judging the wickedness of the Canaanites, motivated the people of Israel to sing. 
And the more you really believe that your freedom, your comfort, your peace was bought with a price, the louder you'll sing. On the other hand, if you think your freedom, peace, and happiness are your due, you won't sing very loud. You may not even sing at all. But for those who know their salvation comes by the shedding of blood, we sing even if we don't know the words, even if we don't know the tune. With little kids, I was sitting with my, my three-year-old and I was teaching him, it doesn't matter if you don't know the words. You hum along. It's a humnal. Just hum it. We're motivated if we know of His holiness and His salvation. In 2 Samuel 6, the parallel passage which we read, Michal, David's wife, rebukes David for uncovering himself as he brought the ark to Jerusalem. When What Michal was saying, isn't, it isn't quite clear. 2 Samuel 6.14 says, David was wearing a linen ephod, something that priests would wear. But Michal says David uncovered himself before female servants. She states that he honored himself. Does she mean that sarcastically? It seems she means that David brought dishonor to himself, to his family, and the office of king. What was, what was he doing? He was rejoicing. He was offering sacrifices, dancing with all his might, shouting, giving to the people, and coming home to bless his family. Was he dishonoring himself? David responds by saying, whatever he was doing, he wasn't doing it for female servants. He was doing it for the Lord. And if you, Michal, think this is abasing, I'll abase myself even further in your eyes, but be held in favor by these female servants. So who was right? Was David dishonoring himself in his attire or attitude? Was Michal dishonoring her husband by her attitude? Verse 23 cryptically states, without assigning agency, that Michal had no child to the day of her death. Was that Michal's doing? Was that David's doing? Was that the Lord's doing in spite of David and Michal? David is proved right. David did nothing against God's law in this instance. David was humbling himself as he rejoiced in the Lord. And Michal refused to join in with him and scorned him for participating in such an undignified way. Remember, that we heard no corrective from Michal when David didn't transport the ark correctly. I believe her barrenness is a judgment from God on her scorn for a humble worshiper. The Lord's judgment ratifies the honest and innocent zeal of David's rejoicing before the Lord. Where am I going with this? That which is most honoring to you, which covers you in the most appropriate garment is when you heed the words of this medley and praise the Lord and give thanks to the Lord and sing to the Lord and glory in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. David can feel free. We can feel free to worship God loudly, heartily, unashamedly before the Lord. And He will judge the naysayers, the scoffers, and the haters. If pride is keeping you from worshiping God, let it go. If how you appear to young ladies is keeping you from worshiping God, let it go. The stars, the asteroids, the planets will rejoice. The seven seas and the fish within them will roar. The trees will sing. But will you be quiet? Future judgment. Look at verse 33 again. 
Then the trees of the field sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. The past judgments of the Lord motivate David to lead in praise. Uh, the context of his rejoicing is judgment on opponents. And the final state that David sings about is judgment on the earth. H- how much is rejoicing in God's judgment part of our praise? How much do Christian radio songs eagerly await God's judgment? They don't. Mainline denominations have reconfigured their hymnals so that judgment isn't ever spoken about. Meanwhile, in America, I've never heard so many people calling for justice. But justice only comes through judgment. And who is better at handing out that judgment, people or God? Who is morally righteous enough to hand out that judgment without hypocrisy? People or God? He comes to judge the earth. Shouldn't God rather come to judge sinners? But then we'd be in trouble too. Perhaps God should just come to judge the really bad sinners. But He comes to judge the earth. All people all the works of their hands. His judgment will ripple through our gardens, our farms, our animals, our architecture, our infrastructure, our legislature. Everything that, has, that sin has touched will be brought under the powerful microscope of His judgment to see whether it should stand. Future judgment is coming, and for that we should praise the Lord. The Lord who said, Touch not my anointed ones. Well, the nations have touched His people. Those nations will be judged. God said not to oppress His people. The nations have oppressed God's people. They will be judged. God said, do my prophets no harm. The nations have martyred the proclaimers of God's word. They will be judged. And that's cause for singing. If God would let His opponents harass, intimidate, and subjugate His subjects with impunity, what kind of God would He be? What kind of power does this God have if He cannot protect His people through justice? But He can protect us. He does have power and He will judge. It is because He judges that we can say His steadfast love endures forever. Those two ideas are not opposed. Such truths are interdependent. If you were to say that you love your child, but you never discipline them, your love would be a lie. Hebrews says, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. If you were to say that you love enslaved people, but when it was within your power to administer justice to one who traded in human flesh and you let them slip away, it will be revealed that you only wanted to appear to love. Steadfast love is honest. Steadfast love is real. Steadfast love is jealous. Steadfast love protects to the point of spilling blood. Love is easy to claim when nothing opposes it. The steadfastness of a love is revealed when opponents come to destroy and love stands up to protect. Joy everlasting. What's your favorite type of candy? Do you like chocolatey, peanut buttery, fruity, or tangy? Do you like to crunch or do you prefer to chew? When I was in elementary school, I would save up my coins, ride my bike to 7-Eleven, and buy a box of Willy Wonka's Everlasting Gobstoppers. They were everlasting, so I figured it was a good investment. Whenever I wanted a piece of candy, I'd just 
reuse one of those everlasting ones. They were little round candy-coated uh, balls that looked kind of plastic. Uh, and you, you would pick a color and pop it in and suck it for a while and swish it around. And, and then you pull it out to see what new flavor and color it had become. And then you stick it back in and repeat the process a couple times until crunch. <laughs> you just can't stand it anymore. and You munch it up, proving it wasn't everlasting after all. And it's probably a good thing that those candies weren't everlasting or else I'd have a box of them in my stomach still. But you know what truly is everlasting? The steadfast love of God. God's love doesn't merely last minutes, years, or millennia. God's love endures forever. And even when it's impossible to conceive of forever with our finite human minds, we can believe the God of the universe when He says that His love lasts into eternity. We've had multiple couples in our church who have been married for 70 years. That's a beautiful long time. But that's nothing compared to eternity. With the one who loves us completely and eternally, Jesus. God's judgments motivated uh, David's praise medley. But we have more reason to praise than David. We have more reason to sing one song right into the next one, to sing all the stanzas, to be out of breath after church. Why? Because we know the judgment of God that David only peeked at. God poured out all of His judgment against sin onto Jesus on the cross. God's love to us isn't hypothetical or a future possibility. We know that God poured out His wrath. Lash upon lash, pain upon pain, excruciating torture upon His one and only His beloved Son. Why? Because sin deserves judgment and we couldn't withstand God's judgment, but Jesus could because He was innocent. God rose Him up from the grave proving that Jesus was innocent, but leaving sin judged and powerless to control us anymore. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God for His judgment on sin in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we thank You for song. We thank You that You have placed a song in our heart and we can sing, not only because we know that You love us, but because You will judge evil. Help us, Lord, this day and every day hence to sing to You to let our joy seep through in songs to you, no matter if they're just humming without words or words without tune. May we sing your praises because you have shaped a song in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray.